He who lives like a pig should die like a pig. This is what we do to the enemies of Allah. Hello there, and welcome to Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, president of Borealis, and I'm continuing my series of reviewing the Swedish Netflix series, Caliphate, the story of Islamic State and the efforts to carry out an attack in Sweden, as well as the efforts by SEPO, which is the Swedish security service, to thwart the attacks. This is episode number four, and as in all good series, it's very riveting. You sort of sit on the edge of your seat a lot. There are a lot of characters and parallel stories. And in keeping with the previous three episodes, I want to talk about how accurate, how realistic, how believable some of the events in episode four were. So the episode four starts off with a very gruesome scene. There is a bunch of ISIS fighters in Iraq or Syria, and they bring in this guy in an orange jumpsuit. He clearly has been captured on the battlefield, and they claim that he was fighting for Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president. So, of course, he's a kafir. He's an unbeliever. They call him a pig. And while a bunch of guys are standing around with their faces covered, another guy with his face covered takes out a knife, and he says, because you are a pig, you will die like a pig, and he slits his throat. You, you don't see it, but you hear that the knife going through his throat. I found this to be, well, obviously it's accurate. We've seen lots of assassination and beheading videos by Islamic State. And of course, these guys truly are cowards. They don't show their faces. If they were proud of what they did and thought they were doing God's work, they wouldn't be covering their faces, would they? So I think that the producers did a good job of looking at what was out there on the internet in terms of these, this propaganda and these basically snuff videos that ISIS puts out. We move on to a Sule story. Sule is the young schoolgirl. Young, 16, 17-ish, who's basically being groomed by Ibe to adopt Islam. This is taking a very worrisome turn from her parents' perspective because they ask her about playing basketball, and I assume from the conversation she's quite a good basketball player. Well, she tells her parents that basketball is haram. It is forbidden in Islam. And her parents say, where do you get that from? And she claims that, you know, a really good Muslim wouldn't play basketball. She calls her parents kufar or infidels, and she swears at them, and she, and she runs out. We later learn that uh, in school, uh, she and her friends, close friends, have been talking about ISIS with other classmates. Uh, and so her parents find out. In fact, her parents, in going into her room to get some clothing for the wash, her mother finds her laptop, and it's not locked. And on the laptop are ISIS videos. So the mom and dad, they find this, and they panic. Because they, they, they now know that their daughter is not just becoming a, a good Muslima, she is being recruited by Islamic State. So the dad's not quite sure what to do, and he finds out from a friend that he should go see Khalid. Now Khalid is another Muslim, another immigrant to Sweden, who owns a store. And so Suda's dad goes to see Khalid, and Khalid explains to him that he had the same problem with his family. His son became very religious one day, and then wanted to go fight with al-Shabaab in Somalia. So I'm assuming Khalid is Somali. Not only that, but the, his two daughters, so the brother's sisters, really wanted to go as well. Turns out that the son made it to Somalia. He he fought for al-Shabaab and he died. And when Suley's dad asked, well, what happened to the daughters? He said, I, only, I took the only recourse possible. He doesn't mention it explicitly, but we later find out that uh, Suley 
has been asked, well, actually, she's been told by her parents she's going to get married to a guy in Jordan. So it's a forced marriage. So you assume by extension that the Khalid's daughters were married off as well to prevent them from leaving and going to going to join Al-Shabaab. I, I find this plausible. We do know that there are forced marriages within the Muslim community uh, in the West. So I don't find it completely out of the ordinary that this would happen. And, and we're talking about two um, very, very suspicious and worried parents here. They're at their wit's end. Their daughter's rejecting them. She doesn't want to see them. She thinks they're not Muslim. She talks about how ISIS is all about, you know, cotton candy and 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 uh, and lollipops and, and, and fairgrounds and all kinds of stuff. And her parents are challenging her. And she doesn't want, want any of it. So her parents are really at, they've, at, they've come to the end of their rope. And they decided that marrying her off to a Jordanian is the only, the only solution. So Suli tells her girlfriend this, Karima, and she figures that this marriage will take place within a month. So we can expect something to happen in the next month so that Suli either joins ISIS or tries to leave the country before she's forced into this marriage. Moving on to Pervin and Hussam, this, of course, is the couple in uh, Iraq, in Raqqa. Pervin, of course, uh, killed Ahmed after he after he raped her and threatened to kill her for talking to the Swedish security service. Well, it turns out that Hussam is suspected of being involved in Hussam's disappearance. And he, of course, saw the blood that night after Pervin had killed Ahmed. She convinced him it was a dream. She had drugged him and he was having a nightmare. But now Hussam is being interrogated by the ISIS police. And they don't think that he killed Ahmed, but now they're accusing him of arranging for his escape. I'm guessing this is fairly accurate. We do know that Islamic State did have an internal security service, that they would handle things like this of that nature. And I'm sure there was some kind of a disciplinary system. We know that you know Islamic State killed anybody for the smallest of infractions, whether you were, you know, you showed a little bit too much of your face one day if you're a woman, or if you didn't pray properly or whatever. Islamic State was all about killing. So this is this is probably pretty accurate. We also learn about a man called Abu Jabril, who is a Muslim living in Sweden. And it turns out that he apparently is the radicalizer. He's a, a figure uh, in Sweden. Uh, Sapo has no records, no adverse records on. They see him as a religious figure, but they don't, they don't see him as an Islamist extremist. I, I found this is pretty good. I mean, when I worked at CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, we obviously didn't have records on everybody. And there were things that you know, would go sort of past our, our 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 frame, if you will, or past our radar. Abu Jabril also knows about the terrorist plan. So someone in Raqqa is in contact with him in Sweden to try and arrange this. Now, speaking of the plan, it turns out that the device has to get from Iraq to Sweden, and ISIS has found someone to do it, and it turns out they have an insider at Baghdad Airport. And so he has to get this device through the scanning machine when he goes through security. And he has a passphrase he's about to use, and he finds a woman who's working in security, and he gets the device through. I don't know how realistic this is. Would Islamic State be able to infiltrate airport security? I, I know for a fact that in many airports here in Canada, there are concerns that organized crime, that drug dealers have been able to get somebody on the inside to see that certain packages or certain cargo passes through. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. And given the fact that Islamic State was you know, was a state, state-led, I guess you could call it, it, it is probably plausible that they would have an insider. Turns out there's an insider in Arlanda Airport in Stockholm as well. So when the package arrives, so the businessman, the supposed businessman carrying the package gets through security with the device. 
he meets up with Miriam, who's working at Orlando Airport. She works in a perfume shop and he hands off the device to her. So it looks like there's an insider within Orlando Airport too. Again, how much security vetting goes on to make sure these people don't get on the inside? I have no idea. I'll have to plead neutrality on that one. Uh, there's another sort of side uh, story about Jacob, Jacob and his uh, his brother. These are the two white trash. Brother, younger brother's an idiot. Uh, Jacob uh, is constantly chastising him for making mistakes. But it turns out that Jacob has a criminal past as well. And he found Islam in prison. This was his, his savior to, to find Islam. His mother wants nothing of it, by the way. He ends up assaulting a pizza guy at a restaurant because he's pissed off at his brother. Now he's, a charge, he's charged with assault and battery. And his, he goes to the police. His mom waiting for him and she just lays into him about how much of a loser he is and how Islam did nothing for him. He's just the, he's just the, the same asshole he was before he found Islam. And Yaqub was kind of wavering before that. He was drinking beer in this pizza place. He didn't seem to be want anything to do with Islam anymore. But I think his mother's sort of yelling at him has kind of made him revert. And you see him, he, he gets back with his brother and they start praying together. So it looks like Yaqub was teetering on giving the whole thing up, but... Uh, because his mother wasn't very helpful, he's reverting back to the plan. We have to also talk about Fatima. So Fatima, of course, is the SAPO officer who's in all kinds of trouble now because she went to a, to a, for a medical test and they drew blood and they found pot. They found marijuana in her blood. So she's been suspended. Just as she, she's finding out more information from Pervin, she's finding out more information about this, these white guys at the shooting range where they have these dummy grenades, they suspend her. She she sus- suspects Nadir, who's her boss, of not liking her for whatever reason and causing her trouble. So it looks like Nadir has convinced the staff to suspend Fatima, take away her badge, take away her gun, and essentially she's not on duty anymore. Uh, Fatima, I, I find this uh, very unrealistic. Fatima, I mean, I get that she's really hot on this case and she wants to solve it, but she goes to this, the firing range alone and she puts the grenade back. So she found one of the dummy grenades. They had it tested, no prints. They can't find anybody that has it. She puts it back and then Jacob and the idiot brother show up and um, she tries to hide and they end up shooting at her. And she's by herself. She's gone there by herself. I don't think that's possible or plausible. And then she decides that because she's suspended, she's going to look into Abu Jabril by herself. Well, she starts taking, you know, she goes on surveillance by herself at night alone in a car to take pictures of his house and who is who's going to be there and who is not. I um I don't believe that. I don't think that I I never worked surveillance at CSIS, but I don't think anybody ever did surveillance uh, alone. So that strikes me as the producers are taking a little liberty with reality here. But and here's the neat part. When she's taking pictures of Abu Jabril, she's seeing the people that come and go and guess who shows up at Abu Jabril's house? Nadir, her boss at Sapo. So you're kind of left hanging as to what that all means. You, my name is Lars Janssen, and I work for the Norwalk Police Department. These meetings give us a chance to exchange information. I know that your network usually has some questions and tips in terms of the radicalization in your areas. We have lots of information that we'll gladly share, things we need help with and data that the Swedish Security Service has released. Another scene that struck me as really important in this episode is that 
So the teachers at Soleil School are concerned because they found that she's talking about this stuff in class. They wanted to try and help her. I guess it's not the first time they come across this. Well, we're introduced to a, a SEPO officer, Swedish Security Service officer, who is running an outreach program uh, amongst various Swedes, not all just Muslims. And it's, it's an outreach program on radicalization. This is extremely realistic. I, my, I myself did dozens of outreach sessions when I was with CSIS to talk about radicalization with communities, what the signs were, what it all meant. The fact that SAPO would do the same thing strikes me as completely uh, okay. I didn't know they did them, but and if the producers are correct, they, they actually do carry out these sessions. So that is completely in keeping with what I used to do at CSIS. So that's a good thing. But interestingly, uh, at this session, the SAPO officer shows the video of the execution that, that started the episode. This is the, the beheading, it's the slitting of the throat of the Assad soldier. And he says, we've identified a bunch of Scandinavians, Swedes, Norwegians, and Danes uh, in the crowd. It's, it's, I guess, facial recognition, even though they're all covered. But he says, there's one guy we can't figure out. This is a guy. He has his arms raised yelling, Allahu Akbar, whatever kind of bullshit these guys yell. And there's what seems to have been a tattoo that's been removed. You can see the scar. But it's a fairly obvious shape on his arm. Anyhow, when, when the episode ends, uh, Dolores, who's, who also works for the school, is out with Ibe, who had, he was at the session. He was at the outreach session, but he went out of the room to take a call from Jakob, the, the white trash guy. And so he didn't see the photograph of the guy with the tattoo. So Dolores and Ibe are out at a, at a restaurant having a meal. And uh, Ibe is trying to get this guy to take interest in Dolores. And he raises his hand to call him over. And guess what? He has the tattoo on his arm and Dolores sees it. She doesn't know that he's looking at it. I'm sorry, he doesn't know that, 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 that she's looking at it. But she recognizes the tattoo from the, the ISIS video. She now knows that Ibe was in Syria or Iraq. And he's part of ISIS. So that's how episode number four ends. Uh, the plot is thickening. It looks like the device is in Sweden. Uh, Sapo's best officer has been suspended. Uh, Sule is desperate to do something because she's going to get married to some old Jordanian fart within a month. So I can't wait till episode five. I'll, I'll give, if nothing else, the series is, it's riveting. As I said, it, it keeps you on the edge of your seat and you want to keep watching. So that's it for my review of episode four. If you've been watching The Caliphate, I'd love to hear your review. I, I read a review just this morning on a website I go to, the European Iron Radicalization. So it seems like I'm not the only one who's looking at this series and reviewing it. But if you're watching it, what do you think? Do you think it's good? Is it as riveting as I find it? Do you think it's it's accurate? Do you think it's plausible? You can reach me on email, borealisrescue.gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on Facebook or on LinkedIn. If you like the content of, of this review of the Caliphate series and you want to receive other reports and other podcasts and other blogs from me, simply go to my webpage, www.borealisrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button, fill in your information. You get a daily digest free of charge to your inbox every morning. All the material I post will come to your inbox. I'll talk to you again soon with episode five. I can't wait. Until then, stay safe.